Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. I am, as always, so glad you are here with me. I am very pleased to have Elizabeth Randall as my guest this week. She is a widely published freelance writer who has written for Florida Magazine, The Orlando Sentinel, and Salon, among other publications. She is a retired English teacher with a master's degree in English history, and she is an acclaimed, award-winning author with five books under her belt, which all center around the state of Florida. The book she is here to talk about is called Murder in St. Augustine, The Mysterious Death of Athalia Ponzel Lindsley. So great to have you here. Thank you. Thanks, Eric. Glad to be here. So how did you first learn about this case? Well, I was in St. Augustine a lot working on my first book about St. Augustine, which uh, was with History Press titled Haunted St. Augustine in St. John's County. And I was in like the government building. It was more of an information center there before they worked a little closer to the main street. And I picked up this book and it said Bloody Sunset in St. Augustine by Jim Masters and Nancy Powell. And I thought, I never heard of this. And for some reason, I just felt it was significant. Although I didn't buy the book because it was really expensive in those days. It was like $30. Um, it might be cheaper now on Amazon. I don't know. But um, it kind of stuck in my mind, the murder. And then later on, I found there was a, a Facebook page and a lot of information on that. So I'd like to start by asking you about the victim, the, the person your book centers around. Athalia Lindsley. She had an extremely colorful background. Would you tell us about her and some of the more notable moments in her life? 
Yeah, I would be happy to, because one of the reasons I wrote the book, Eric, was to kind of um, clear her name, so to speak. Um, she, although she was a victim in a horrendous murder, she was really vilified by the press and the people in St. Augustine. And it was really infuriating when you really looked into some of the incidents that occurred. But Athalia Ponzel Lindsley, she was born Athalia Fetter, F-E-T-T-E-R. Um, I'm not sure if she was born on the Isle of Pines. Uh, America, the United States used to own a section of Cuba called the Isle of Pines or Island of Youth, and just like Guantanamo Bay. And they owned it for a period of maybe 30 years. And Athalia kind of grew up there with her sister. Her father, um, Charles Fetter, really had a lot to do with, you know, bringing the island up to the 20th century. You know, he helped initiate the first electric lights. And Athalia's mother, uh, Marguerite uh, Gardner, met Charles Fetter on the Isle of Pines. She was an adventurous young lady who took a plane from Miami to uh, Cuba and met this distinguished older gentleman and fell in love. So Athalia grew up on the Isle of Pines, but then Cuba wanted the island back and Marguerite Fetter really, he, she went to Washington DC with some friends and tried to keep it in the realm of the United States, but she was unsuccessful. But you can see where Athalia got her independent nature. And so they moved back to Jacksonville where Athalia and her sister grew up. They went, attended school, uh, the St. Joseph's school in St. Augustine for a year or two. So they were familiar with the area. And then Athalia got married at the age of 18, her first of three marriages. It didn't last long. And before you knew it, she was living in New York City with her sister in a very diverse neighborhood. I mean, these were two girls who grew up in the South, but they were both very beautiful and very ambitious. And Athalia in particular really uh, reaped some success in New York City. She was cast in a Broadway play. She was a TV hostess on a game show. Uh, she was a model. She was a powers model, which was a very big deal then. And she was really a beautiful young woman and dated a lot of prominent men. Uh, she was engaged to Joseph Kennedy Jr. and he died in the war. And she also dated Jack Dempsey, the boxer, and she hung out at the Stork Club and was mentioned by Luella Parsons uh, in her column. So, you know, she was on her way up, but she never quite broke the ceiling of fame. And then, you know, some other things happened. So she moved back to Jacksonville uh, with her mother. They had a big house in Riverview. Her father had died years before. And uh, she did a lot of things. I mean, she Athelia was just a powerhouse of energy. She invented a household gadget and 
got a patent for it, which is still listed, you know, in the National Registry. She wrote a book on gardening. She used to go pistol shooting with, you know, the Jacksonville police force. Uh, she was a proud conservative Republican and very active in the, that political party loved animals and that's what got her into a little trouble later on but at any rate she decided to buy the mansion on 124 marine street in saint augustine and moved her invalid mother in there because uh, athalia had married a realtor in jacksonville and the marriage didn't last that was her second one and uh, when she moved to saint augustine with her mother she was single but right away, she started getting into hot water with her neighbors. And uh, that's where really all the trouble started. Right, right. Yes. Yeah, I, I would like to ask you about St. Augustine. Yes. Uh, it is uh -huh. Florida's oldest city, right? Well, it's there's a lot of discussion about that in Florida. It's Florida's oldest continuously occupied city, but Pensacola is actually older, but there were some gaps in between uh, people living there. Okay. But yeah, they call it, it's, it's uh, 1582, it was founded, 1585 uh, by Pedro Avilas, and it's full of history. You know, every 50 years now, they have this big celebration, you know, celebrating the anniversary of the founding of the city. And it's uh, very, you know, a lot of historic buildings have been maintained. It's a beautiful city. People love it. Neat. Yeah. I, I haven't been there, but yeah, it, it's a place I'd like to visit. You should. Cobblestone Street, you know. Oh, cool. So... Athalia was married to a man named James Lindsley, nicknamed Jinx. Right. That was her third marriage. And uh, that happened. Um, she uh, was involved in this feud with her neighbors and about her animals. They barked a lot or something and tending to her invalid mother. And her mother died, I think, in April of 1973 and she married Jinx that September and they were both realtors and they had you know some things in common and I guess they kind of thought you know they'd be a power couple it was her third marriage and his second so they got together and he was really uh, in love with her he uh, really was besotted with her and she she may have been more realistic but she was definitely fond of him although they fought a lot why was he called jinx well it was a very apt nickname as it turned out his first wife died on uh, new year's eve i think in 1960 or something and um he was driving and there was a car accident and her neck snapped instantly. So she was dead. And I don't think they ever did a breathalyzer. I don't know what the deal was. There are, I, I did find old negatives of the crash in the history museum, but I don't know that anything was ever done. So she died. And then Jinx was 
old school St. Augustine. And that may be another reason Athalia was attracted to him because the townspeople called her a Yankee and she was born and bred in Jacksonville and except for her sojourn in Cuba and New York City. But she, you know, I've talked to people in St. Augustine and they're like, there's a caste system. And if the caste is, if you were born here and your parents were born here, you're in. Otherwise, you know, you're, you're not. And so she uh, was not well liked in St. Augustine at all. But I think she married Jinx to help with that because he was on the city commission. He had lived there all his life. They owned the oldest building in St. Augustine, the one across from Trinity Episcopal very old, supposedly haunted place, as most places are in St. Augustine. And um, they worked there, Athalia and Jinx worked there together, you know, doing real estate. But you may not remember this, Eric, but I do. The 70s were a terrible time for real estate. And so they could not have been doing that well. In fact, they kept trying to sell Athalia's house on Marine Street, uh, to no avail, they couldn't sell it. Yeah, yeah. I, I was definitely uh, a youngin in the 70s, but I do remember the end of the decade. Mm -hmm. uh, so they were married, but they lived in separate houses. To an extent. I mean, I don't think it was like a regular thing, but he did own a house in... Um, Anastasia Island, which is very pricey now, but at the time he had a very modest home there um, with a beautiful view. And he kept his house and she, you know, kept the Marine Street house because it had all her mother's things in it. And her mother had an accumulation of things. They probably filled rooms. And uh, she also had animals. She had like six dogs. One was her mother's old dog and some other ones. And um, she also had a wounded bird that she was taking care of. She walked it every day for exercise. It had a broken wing and she was trying to heal it. So, you know, Athelia... I think part of Athalia's problem in St. Augustine, from what I could tell uh, from my readings, and I read a lot, was that she was just ahead of her time. You know, she didn't, she wasn't a homemaker. She had no children. She uh, was a career woman and had a pretty successful career. She had ambitions in politics. I think she had intended to, you know, run for public office. And um, they just weren't used to a woman like that. And she had lived in a lot of different places. Her mother was a role model. And uh, she just had a lot of trouble in St. Augustine. And a lot of people said terrible things about her. So would you mind walking us through that Fateful, tragic day, mm. January 23rd, 1974. Well, you know, I did a lot of research for this particular book because it meant a lot to me. I, I just really got involved in it. And um, 
it was daylight savings time because they hadn't turned the clocks back that year. So though it was January, it was broad daylight out uh, till after six o'clock. But, you know, it was a nice enough day. I think the temperature was in the 70s. And someone wrote a letter to the St. Augustine record saying what a wonderful place St. Augustine was to live. And in the paper, too, were, you know, a local lawyer, Frank Upchurch, he was being honored by some uh, local club and some local St. Augustine High School students were mentioned for their outstanding scholastic work. And Athalia uh, went to Jacksonville with her husband, Jinx. Now, they had a somewhat stormy relationship, which I don't think is that odd, considering they were both in the, see, Athalia was in her 50s when they got married, and he was, Jinx was in his 60s. And uh, they had a lot of trouble. They had both been single a long time and they had a lot of trouble meshing, you know, their lives together. So they spent time in their own individual houses, but they got together. And the 23rd was one day when they got together and they went to Jacksonville and Jinx's Pinto, uh, partly because he chain smoked and partly because he thought that Athalia's old Cadillac wouldn't make it. So they went to Jacksonville and he went to go see his stockbroker or something. And she picked up a watch she was having repaired and bought Jinx some socks. And then together they went shopping for a Chinese dinner together. And I need to backtrack a little because I forgot one thing. Before they went to Jacksonville together, Jinx and Athalia had lunch with some friends, one of whom was Nancy Powers, who was the managing editor, editor for the Jacksonville Times Union, a good friend of theirs, of the Lindsleys. And they had fish. They were at a fish uh, seafood restaurant, Seafair, I think the name was. And Athalia cut her fish with her fork wouldn't use her knife. And when Jinx asked her why, she said, well, it's the Chinese New Year. It's bad luck to use a knife. So they finished lunch and then they went to Jacksonville. They went shopping there for their Chinese dinner because presumably the items they needed for it, you know, water chestnuts might not have been available in St. Augustine. So they drove back and during the drive back at the Alia, you know, kept telling Jinx she really had to go to the bathroom. So when they got to the real estate office where they worked, he dropped her off, he kissed her, and he said, I'll see you in an hour, because he was going to go back to his house, and she was going to meet him there. On the way to his house, he made two stops. One was at a drugstore where he talked to a friend, Frank Upchurch, Jr., and his brother. And then he got in the car and he went and he went to some drive through dairy place and got some milk. And then he got home and his neighbor saw him come up around six o'clock. And uh, he got into a pair of jeans and waited for Athalia. And he says he didn't worry when she didn't come because he just figured she was feeding the animals or watering some her plants. 
and she would be there soon. In fact, he tried calling her because he wanted her to bring the newspaper, the St. Augustine Record, to see if there was any news about Athalia's recent visit to the city commission. So he didn't worry. He was watching TV. And then all of a sudden, he gets a call from a neighbor, Jean Trommel, and she said, you need to get over to Athalia's fast. And he's like, why? What's wrong? And she said, well, I don't know what it is, but it's bad. So Jinx goes on over there. Meanwhile, Athalia, after leaving their real estate office, drives home in her Cadillac, goes in around the back, gets out, and carries the box of the bag of groceries with her, puts her keys into the lock, leaves the keys in the lock, which was very unlike her, but there's a picture of it, goes inside her home, puts the groceries on the floor. She was obviously in a hurry to get to the bathroom. And um, I think she was having, you know, some problems at the time. She may have needed a hysterectomy or I'm not sure, but she was very, very thin and uh, we're not sure what her health was at that time. However, while she was in the bathroom, I think what happened was someone was ringing her doorbell and ringing it over and over and over. And while she was in the bathroom, she couldn't answer. So she gets out of there and she gets the little bird because she walks the bird every day to exercise the wing and opens the door, looks out, no one's there. So she walks out, the little bird trailing behind her to get the mail. She gets her mail. She walks back and someone attacks her with a machete. And he cuts off some of her fingers, almost severs her hand, and then gets her carotid artery. And, you know, the blood spurted up the east side of the wall. It, she probably died before she hit the ground, but her head was almost severed. So I've seen the crime scene photographs. Her head is resting on the stoop, which attached by a sliver to the rest of her body. Her pearls are everywhere. Her dress is hiked up. The bird's dead, too. Whoever killed Athalia killed the bird as well. And this all occurred, oh, I don't know, around 6 o'clock or so. And uh, people started gathering almost immediately after. And just so we're clear, Jinx received the phone call that told him something bad had happened after she had been killed. Yes, it was after she was killed. And, uh, and then Jinx, um, he gets, he, you know, in those days, I don't know, he got out of his jeans and put his suit back on or something. And he called his lawyer before he left the house. And his lawyer was there by the time Jinx arrived, as well as, um, the city police and then the sheriff's office, Dudley Garrett, the sheriff. And we'll be right back. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. 
Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906, when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Reva Steed's Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. And we have returned. Um, It's obviously a gruesome crime scene, blood everywhere. What are some of the key pieces of evidence investigators focus on? Yeah, well, here's the thing. You know, this was St. Augustine in 1974, and uh, they, they didn't have stuff like this happen. They didn't have, you know, a prominent woman in a well-to-do neighborhood, you know, uh, almost beheaded in our front yard with a machete. Uh, it's unheard of. They didn't know what to do. They had no DNA training. Um, at the time, two of their detectives were in Orlando getting some training in, in this kind of, you know, preserving crime scenes and DNA evidence, but they didn't know what to do. So the whole thing was a mess from start to finish. Um, they uh, There was actually... I think it was an ambulance driver hosed down the scene, hosed down all the, you know, every everything. And so a lot of evidence was lost then, obviously. And, uh, you know, people were walking all over the place. Uh, 
you know, there was a blood trail, but people were, you know, stepping in it. So it just, it the crime scene was a mess. And that's probably one of the reasons, uh, you know, it was such a complicated case. But they didn't know what to do. Orlando was the same way in those days. And I think eventually they got a crime scene unit in from Jacksonville for Athalia, but it took a while. Uh, there is a suggestion in your book that there might have been a reason why that ambulance driver washed the blood away with a hose, right? Well, I've heard actually from people who were there and they say, well, one of the cops told him to do it. You know, I've heard that a few times. And um, it could be that the police thought that Jinx had done it and they were trying to protect him because he was like old St. Augustine. He was a native son, you know, all that. Um, that. But there were, you know, there were so many rumors. In fact, the first book, Bloody St. Augustine, uh, Bloody Sunset in St. Augustine, um, the authors, even though they were journalists, didn't use their real names and presented it as a book based on a true story. But it wasn't a true story because they wanted to include all the inside information in St. Augustine. And St. Augustine is a very tightly knit community, even today. You know, it's deeply Southern and they, you know, the old English uh, aristocrat descendants, uh, they stick together. So one of the things that, that stuck out at the scene of the crime uh, is that there was a, a trail of blood. And this seems like a good place maybe to, to talk about the neighbor, Alan Stanford, and the beef she had with him and he had with her. Yes. Uh, let me tell you about Alan Stanford. But first, I want to talk about Alan and Jinx Lindsley, her husband, because they were the two main suspects. Now, Jinx was ruled out pretty early as a murder suspect, even though he carried a machete, which was the word, which was uh the murder weapon around in the trunk of his car. But everyone in St. Augustine carried a machete in those days. Jinx was a realtor and he had to cut away underbrush to show property. And he produced the machete immediately for the police. There was no blood on it. Also, Jinx passed a lie detector test with the county. Um, Alan, uh, who was the other suspect, uh, took a lie detector test with a friend, not the city, and the results were not conclusive. But there is no way Jinx could have killed Athalia given the timeline, the people who spoke to him as he stopped at a drugstore and a place to get milk. His neighbors saw him wheel into his driveway around the time Athalia was cut down. In a police report, the sheriff's department replicated the route from the realtor's office to Jinx's house on Anastasia Island. So even if you drove as fast as you could, the time does not add up from when Jinx left Athalia and when he showed up at his house on Anastasia Island. A lot of people still think Jinx did it. He had a quick temper and he was a drinker. I've heard podcasts to that extent, but they lacked the true facts. 
Alan Stanford, on the other hand, was considered a fine Southern gentleman. He was an usher at Trinity Episcopal Church. He was Athalia's next door neighbor in that affluent neighborhood and the county manager. He also claimed to be the county engineer, and we'll get to that issue in a minute. Athalia and Alan were feuding with each other. It started with her barking dogs. She had six or seven. Some were strays, some were beloved family pets. Her neighbors on both sides, the McCormicks and the Stanfords, complained bitterly about the dogs barking. They took her to court over it. That sounds pretty extreme. I'd add if the dogs were really that loud, wouldn't they have bothered Athalia's invalid mother who died a few days before the court hearing? But there is no record that Athalia's neighbors even commented on Marguerite Fetter's passing. Marguerite, by the way, was buried in Jacksonville. And nine months later, Athalia had the same pallbearers buried in the same cemetery. But back to January 1974, Alan and the other commission members were incensed that Athalia showed up at their meetings and challenged Alan. She said Alan had the highest salary and was the most unqualified employee in the county. Athalia was used to her mother, Marguerite, who stood up for her rights and was active in civic and community affairs. Athalia had had a successful career in New York City, so she spoke out. And in St. Augustine, that was just considered scandalous that she challenged these prominent men. At one of the commission meetings, she accused Alan of threatening her life, which she also told her sister, her husband, and a family friend. Her issue with Alan was that he was signing records as the county engineer, and he didn't have a degree in civil engineering. He had a degree in marine engineering, and he was supposed to take the engineering test, which he did, but he flunked it. So they were giving him another chance to take it once more. I got a hold of the CD with the commission meetings uh, transcribed. And the one where Athalia repeated Alan's death threat was in a separate file. But, you know, Athalia was right about everything she said. And a lot of people in St. Augustine agreed with her. There was a letter in the St. Augustine record titled, Hooray for Mrs. Lindsley. She would organize aggrieved workers to attend commission meetings. Then Alan would try to fire them. Alan was a terrible county manager. Many county roads were underwater. He authorized a road to be paved with asphalt, only an inch or two thick, and the commission authorized a dumping ground in a poorer neighborhood, saying it was to enrich the soil. Athalia didn't let them get away with any of it. And Jenks, he was a former commission member himself. He supported her efforts. So Alan really, really hated Athalia. And she said that one time he called her over to his car after she said goodbye to some friends. He said, you need to stop what you're doing or I'm going to fix you. In public, he said he would send her back where she came from. 
So she told Jinx and she told another family friend and her younger sister, that man is going to kill me. But she wouldn't give up. She said, I'm going to run Alan Stanford out of town. And Alan was visited in his office by two members of the Florida Board of Engineers. And they said, you know, you are violating the law by misrepresenting your position, signing everything as the county engineer. You violated statutes, and we're looking into this. And tomorrow, we're going to interview Mrs. Lindsley, who initiated this matter. So Alan is steaming. He goes home and has two or three drinks in rapid succession. According to him and to his wife and daughter, he then changed into some work clothes, ate his dinner in about three minutes, then suddenly decided to drive back to the office to pick up some engineering books he left there. So Alan's whereabouts were a point of contention. And what I think really happened after talking to a lot of people about this and going over depositions, police reports, interviews, and people who were there, here is what I think happened. Alan gets home, has a few drinks, then he goes out to the shed, grabs the machete he borrowed a month ago from the county and never returned, rang Athalia's doorbell, and then went around to the side of the house and waited for Athalia to come out. So, Athalia finally appears with her little injured bird trailing behind. She looks around and sees no one, so she walks down the path to get the mail. On the way back, Alan confronts her with the machete. Uh, Fingers and a hand are severed. He kills the bird. There are screams. Then he takes a whack at her neck and almost beheads her. Her blood covered the east side of the house, pooled in the driveway, and her head lay on a step attached by one thin strand to the rest of her body. Then he turned and headed for the Stanford residence, leaving a trail of blood. He walked over to his car, where they later found blood spots on a cigarette cellophane wrapper, and he took clothes from the dirty laundry and took off in his county Impala. There is evidence he went to his office, cleaned up, disposed of the bloody clothes, his shoes, and watch. There is every bit of evidence to suggest that uh, Patricia and Patty Stanford, Alan's wife and daughter, saw him as he climbed over the little concrete wall separating the Stanford and the uh, Lindsley house, they saw him covered in blood at the back door. And then he went around to the shed and got the clothes on the car and went to his office. So he made them accomplices um, kind of against their will, but they did support his version of events. So, yeah, there were uh, witnesses as well, including a neighbor kid. Locke McCormick. Yeah, I I forgot. So there was one eyewitness, um, and this guy is still alive, uh, but he doesn't talk about it. And um, when uh, 
one of their next door neighbors, uh, Locke McCormick, he was a young kid, about 18, home from college for a brief time. He was going to Daytona Community College. And uh, he was watching TV and he heard this, what he thought later described as a weird chopping sound. And he went outside and he saw the back of a man with gray hair, black dress pants and a white dress shirt uh, moving a machete up and down. He never saw his face. And then he saw him stop and move off toward the Stanford house. <laughs> and then Locke saw Athalia and he ran back home and he shouted to his mother and grandmother, Plick quick, call an ambulance. Mr. Stanford has hurt Mrs. Ponzel. That's what he said. But later he took it back. So, and he said he couldn't be sure. Uh, do you have any theories on that? Uh, do, do you think he made a mistake? The person he initially said he saw, um, he identified that person as having silver and brown hair. And that sounded a lot like Stanford. Yeah, Alan Stanford. It certainly did. And um, yeah, I do have some theories because I talked to some of Locke's friends who made me promise never to identify them. But they said that Locke was one of the nicest guys you would ever want to meet. Just in fact, one of his friends, two of his friends um, used to play together all the time in uh, 124 Marine Street because one of them lived there then. And she remembers that as a very happy sunlit place. And, um, but she said that his family was afraid. They were afraid of Alan and they uh, didn't want Locke to be in any danger. And so, you know, they said, Oh, are you really sure? You know, are you positive? And, um, you know, it was easy to, get him to say, well, you know, no one can be 100% sure. And when later on he uh, was of no use at all in identifying uh, Athalia's killer. But I do think he was afraid and his family was afraid and they just didn't want any trouble. And they, to be honest, they weren't too crazy about Athalia. And maybe, you know, they just thought it's not worth it, you know, risking my son's life, you know, over this. Who knows? Right. Some of the most damning evidence against Stanford uh, was, was his own changing story, right? And the changing stories of his wife and daughter as well. Yeah. And, you know, I had a tape of uh, Patricia Stanford's uh, deposition, and I lost it, unfortunately. But she just, you know, she'd stumbled over her words. I mean, she was almost incoherent. So if that sounds like someone lying, and of course what she said made, made no sense. So, yeah, I, I think they were traumatized. Maybe they were afraid too. I don't know. Uh, I felt really sorry for young Patty Stanford because that was a lot for a young girl to have to go through. But they were all home when it happened. They ran out to the front. You know, in those days they had, you know, wire fences around the front lawns. And they ran out to the front when they heard the screams and saw, you know, Athalia lying there in a pool of blood. And, you know, Patty Stanford said, oh, I wish I hadn't looked and um, ran back in the house. And I remember uh, Rosemary McCormick, the other neighbor, was calling Alan, Patty, come quick. 
but Alan was nowhere to be seen. So that was another weird thing. So, yeah, there was more evidence than that, though. There was a ton of evidence. It's really crazy when you think about it. Um, Dewey Lee uh, was a guy who worked for the county. He was a Ford mechanic. They said he was the best damn Ford mechanic who ever lived. And Dewey Lee had a habit of roaming through the woods and roaming through dumps, looking for stuff for car parts. But also, he was a single dad, and he was looking for his uh, youngest daughter, who would run away all the time. This was the 70s. And uh, so on one of his roamings down uh, Rabalto Street in the dump, he found a machete. He found a bloody shirt. The machete had blonde hairs on it and blood. Um, a bloody shirt, a bloody watch, uh, bloody pants and shoes. He found all that in the dump. And he called Eddie Lightsley, the uh, detective on the job, and they picked up the evidence. A lot of people say the evidence was planted. But, you know, I don't, I don't know. It doesn't sound like it to me. But the thing is, the watch was verified as Allen's. The shirt was verified as having been bought by Patty Stanford. Uh, the blonde hairs, well, they didn't have the DNA. It, it was, you know, very likely Athelia's, but, you know, there was an element of doubt. Um, the machete was definitely the murder weapon, though, and the reason they know this, and I'm going to go back to the machete now, is, oh, but one other thing, the shoes, I'll bring that up in a minute. They knew they had the right machete because Alan Stanford had checked this machete out of the county office a month ago. He said he returned it, but the guy in charge of the equipment said he never did. And this, you know, they said looked like the one that belonged to the county. And they knew that she was killed with a machete because the slits were so thin and she died so quickly. So they, they recover all of this evidence. The watch is Alan's watch. Um, they, it has a mark on it from the jeweler. And, you know, you would have thought he was a dead duck, except for, you know, a couple things in his favor. But one other thing, those were his shoes. I wonder when he uh, left, say he was all bloody, he went to his office, he showered. Uh, there was a shower there, put on the dirty clothes, but he couldn't have had any shoes. So if they had just looked at his feet, when he got back from the office the night of the 23rd, he might not have been wearing any shoes, and that would have told them a lot. But be that as it may, uh, two things that should have really sunk Alan, and one was they were trying to have the trial in St. Augustine and call the jury in St. Augustine. And it was going to be like a year before they had the trial. And... Uh, what happened was another woman on Marine Street died. She was murdered, Frances Bemis. It was like eight or nine months after Athalia died. And the funny thing was, Frances was also a New York City successful career woman who retired to St. Augustine, uh, very active in socially and in the community. She was a civil rights activist which was very rare for a Southern lady in those days. And 
just a really forward thinking, progressive, intellectual type of person. And she was going around saying, well, I know who killed Athalia and I'm trying to get him to come forward. I mean, I have an eyewitness to the murder and I'm trying to get him to come forward. And so somebody, she used to walk every night. I, I've walked the path she used to walk and, um, in St. Augustine. And somebody got her near a vacant lot with a concrete brick and bashed her head in and then tried to set her on fire. I don't know why. And they found her the next morning, someone who was walking his dog. Um, and so it was just very bizarre. There were two other people who died that year, uh, two homeless people who were beaten to death. So I don't know what was going on in St. Augustine, but a lot of people were being murdered right then. Back again in a moment. And we have returned once more. Yeah, the, the murder of Francis was odd. There was no sign of, of sexual assault, mm -hmm. no sign of robbery, no obvious motive. No. And, you know, I talked to Jean Trummel, her neighbor, the artist, you know, uh, when I was writing the book. And I asked her who she thought killed Francis because a lot of people said Alan did. The FBI looked into it. He was a suspect, but they never charged him. But frankly, you know, I don't think it was Alan because Alan killed Athelia, in my opinion, in a fit of passion after he had a few drinks. And with Francis, it would be more cold-blooded. I don't think he had it in him, you know. And he was plus he was afraid. He was already waiting as the main murder suspect and, you know, a trial. So I don't think it was him. Jean Trommel said she thought it was someone who was uh, renting an apartment from Francis because Francis owned an apartment building. And she said she thought it was a tenant, but who knows? It's unsolved to this day. But yeah, it didn't help, you know, the attitude of the, of the town. It was, it was a terrible time. It really was. So, so then uh, I think the day, the anniversary of Athalia's death, Alan goes to trial in St. Augustine and his church Trinity Episcopal was raising a defense fund for him. You write that it appeared as though the prosecution's case was ironclad. Mm -hmm. They had the death threats, the murder weapon, mm -hmm. the bloodstained clothes, mm -hmm. the blood spots that, that led to his house. Uh, he, saying, he had a motive. He kept saying, well, people saw my car parked at the office, you know, at the time of the murder. Well, people under oath said they did not, you know, but I'm sorry, I interrupted you. So. Oh no, that that's okay. And by the way, there, there's blood at his office too. Yes. Yes. They found blood on a pole near his office. And so I don't know. So how did his defense attorney handle this seemingly insurmountable mound of evidence against him? He had a really, really good defense attorney. He had the best, Walter Arnold. And uh, Walter Arnold, this was a man who was driven. He 
practiced law till he was in his 90s. I think he was in his 60s around the time of this case. He had a very successful law business He in Jacksonville. He came from nothing, this man. He worked his way up. He found mentors. He went to the service. He scrabbled his way through law school and scholarships. He was the best. At this point in his life, he was like, I'm only going to take cases that interest me. And this case interested him, and he wrote about it in his uh, autobiography after he finally retired. It's called Not Guilty, and I think you can still find it on Amazon. It's uh, And he talks about this case in it. This is one of the chapters in it. And uh, he was just very wily. He created enough. Of course, it was kind of a friendly jury anyway. But at any rate, he uh, created enough doubt that Alan was acquitted, as crazy as that sounds. At one time, he called for a mistrial. And, you know, um, the prosecuting attorneys are like, you're crazy. You know, uh, we're, you know, they were so confident. They just couldn't believe with the evidence that they would lose. But lose they did. And um, when Alan was acquitted. He fell down on his knees and he raised his hands in the air and he praised God. And he fully expected to get his job back at the city commission. So what what happened there, may I ask? They told him, <laughs> you know, it was kind of like the evidence was overwhelming. And even though he was acquitted, it was almost like, okay, we hated Athalia. We'll let you off. But, you know, we don't want anything to do with you because you're a murderer. And if you talk to anyone in St. Augustine today, you know, they all know Alan did it even to this day. And it's a topic of great interest to them. I mean, I go back there a lot uh, to talk about the book and the murder and they're all like really interested in it and very sorry that justice really was never done. I guess, you know, I kind of feel like remembering Athalia and Francis this way is a little bit of justice for them. True. Yeah. But his attorney getting this acquittal for him, what were some of the strategies used? You know, they minimized the death threats as, as an example. So yeah. it was nothing. Well, you know, it was hearsay, I guess, because she, you know, she heard it. She told Jinx and her friend, but they had never heard it. And her sister, but, you know, they had never heard it. So you really couldn't use that, although I believe it. But um, she, uh, how did they get him? Oh, yeah. So they threw everybody under the bus. The other weekend when I was in St. Augustine talking about the book, I People, um, one of the people who came to see it, she said, oh, I'm the niece, the grandniece of uh, the lady who was on the bike. There was a, a woman on a bike riding past 124 Marine Street, and she swore she saw a gray-haired man enter uh, Athalia's front yard. And this was how uh, Walter managed to throw uh, Dewey Lee, who found the evidence, under the bus. Because the person who finds the evidence is always suspect. We saw that with Casey Anthony. So um, they tried to throw him under the bus. But, you know, if the pros the prosecutors just thought it was ridiculous. They thought, oh, there was a Chinese guy. They, they said there was an Oriental person with crazy hair hanging around. They said it was a it was a hit job 
like, you know, you always do hit jobs with uh, a machete and blood everywhere in broad daylight. So, you know, just ridiculous things. But people bought it, even though the prosecutors, like as far as Dewey Lee was concerned, you know, this is a guy who spent his life underneath cars, underneath Ford cars. He did not wear dress pants and a dress shirt ever. And plus, he was logged in, you know, with the county working, had a solid alibi during the time of the murder, as Jinx did. But they just needed any little thing to wriggle out of it. And they acquitted him. And uh, but they said, you know, we really, you know, you're not going to get your job back. You're kind of persona non grata. So the Stanford family moved to Miami and they stayed there not all that long. There, Some people say that Alan and Patty separated at that point, but they were together when they moved to uh, South Carolina. They moved to uh, Mount Pleasant, South Carolina, and uh, did very well there. Um, Alan worked for the local as a marine engineer there for several years. Uh, Patty died. She died of lung cancer, and there was a brouhaha over her will. Uh, but he remarried. And when he died, I think he died in 2006, his obituary was in the, I think it's the Times Courier in, in St. South Carolina in Charleston. And uh, not a mention that he ever lived in Florida. They said he was a fine Southern gentleman. He was this, he was that, you know, lauded him. And that was the end of that. Hmm. So... Stanford testified, right? Yeah, he testified in his own defense. And he said that um, Athalia was a nut, you know, because she because she questioned him and the other <laughs> members of the commission. Only a nut would do that, right? So. And again, the initial dispute between them was about her dogs. She supposedly had seven dogs. The Stanfords complained that these dogs were barking at all hours of the day and night. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But interestingly, there were no dogs barking yeah, when exactly. she was. They weren't barking. So, you know, it's, I, I don't know. I, I've noticed before, you know, in the southern towns, a single woman is a subject of gossip. And even though she was married, she did live alone part of the time. And so... And she was just different, you know, she was different from, you know, the Southern Bells, so. Goodness. So was there ever any uh, DNA testing done? Yeah, you know, uh, when I was working on the book, I got all excited because I heard they were doing a special uh, test in the St. John's County Sheriff's Office with old DNA. And I thought, wow, this is our chance. And so I called them up. And they said, no, most, see, what happened was when the case, when Alan was acquitted, Dudley Garrett closed the case. It should have stayed a cold case, but he closed it because he said to prosecute someone else would be to prosecute an innocent man. So they kept the evidence for like 10 years and then they threw it out. Although Alan did call evidence and ask for his watch back. Did they give it? Back to him? <laughs> no. 
<laughs> I mean, do you believe that? So he, he, yeah, he asked for his watch, but, uh, but he didn't get it. They threw it out. They threw the evidence out. And then the lady, you know, the sheriff told me, she, you know, she said, well, it's very unlikely any of that evidence, you know, it, w it would have been contaminated. They didn't know how to keep it in those days. It would have been too, um, decayed to really be of use. So we'll never, you know, have any definitive proof. But again, I feel that as long as, you know, we remember them and, you know, this lack of justice, that in a way that's justice in its own sense. It's, it's so unbelievable that, that he was acquitted. Were there ever any jury members uh, interviewed? Because it seemed like everybody believed that he was guilty, except for the jury. Oh, I think they thought he was guilty. Um, as far as the jurors, I I never tracked any of them down. But looking at old newspapers, when jurors were selected in those days, they put their name and their address right in the newspaper. Do you believe that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they were all kinds of people. And um I think a point of contention might have been the shoes because they said the shoes were a little bigger than the kind he ordinarily wore, like half a size or something. But I didn't see that as real, you know, it's like OJ and the glove. So. So Dewey Lee, wasn't he a, a paid police informant? He collected a, a reward, right? Well, I don't know if he collected a reward. He could have. But uh, he was, you know, an informant for uh, Eddie Lightsley. So. Well, tell us more about this book and the other books you've written. Oh, thanks, Eric. Well, this year um, I had two books published, one in the summer one a few weeks ago. The one in the summer was called Past and Present Historic Orlando. And it's really an interesting book because it shows the diversity of Orlando. You think of Orlando as this, you know, Wild West Southern town. Uh, and it was to an extent, but it was also, you know, it was run by immigrants. Um, you know, they brought prosperity to Orlando. So, and uh, you know, native people as well. So it's, we show the old and the new pictures and it's a lot of history. And then my fiction book, I wrote a novel called Fire is the Test of Gold. And it's a, a kind of a thriller. It's a book about two men who take off into a summer squall uh, from like uh, Cape Canaveral and disappear. They're gone. So what happens to them? What happens to the people they leave behind? So it takes us from central Florida and the underbelly of suburbia to uh, New Orleans and Hawaii. And it's a, a really fun read. Sounds great. Yeah. And your website is ElizabethRandallAuthor.com. Right. And all my books are on Amazon as well. But it, it's been a pleasure talking to you. The time has just flown. Yes, yes. It's, it's been so interesting. Uh, thank you so much for sharing details about this story. It's, it's very fascinating. Well, thanks, Eric. And I'm glad we got the sound to work. <laughs> Again, I have been speaking to Elizabeth Randall, 
Her book is called Murder in St. Augustine, The Mysterious Death of Athalia Ponzel Lindsley. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow.